Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father in heaven, this morning as we come together and examine your word, we are truly grateful to you for your word, that it is a lamp to our feet and a light to our path. Lord, we pray that it is that and praise you that it is that light that arises to us in the midst of darkness, in the midst of peril, in the midst of deception. And we thank you and praise you that in these last days, Lord God Almighty, we have your word, that it is that truth from you, giving us wisdom and insight insight and wisdom that can come only from your word so that we may stand fast and stand faithful in these last days in perilous times we pray lord that your word would rise to the surface of our minds so that in everything we evaluate the circumstances in the light of its truth that we may indeed live for the glory of Jesus Christ. To the praise of your goodness and glory, in Jesus' name, amen. I have been thinking over the last few weeks, especially in the light of various kinds of things that are going on in the world and going on in our own country these days, both political and religious, of which there are too many of those things to name. Specifically, most of you are familiar with the things that are going on. I thought it would be appropriate to take a look at some texts, in particular texts that deal with having direction for or in the midst of deception in the last days. And we're going to be looking at Many verses this morning. We'll start in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. And we're going to break this, if the Lord wills, this message into at least two parts, today being the first. We will cover first the deception, and then we will cover the direction that we have in the last days, drawing both truths from this text of Scripture here in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. Let me remind you, as we move into this text, that the book of Hebrews tells us that the last days began with the second coming, or the first coming, excuse me, of our Lord Jesus Christ. Hebrews chapter 1, verse 1, says that God, who at sundry times and in diverse manners spake in time past unto the fathers by the prophets, has in these last days spoken to us through His Son. That is, He has spoken in these last days through our Lord Jesus Christ. Now we know that Christ gave his word, according to John chapter 14, 15, and 16, to the apostles. And those men would, by virtue of the work of the Holy Spirit in their lives, pen the New Testament. Those individuals and individuals closely associated with those apostles. And they have, and you have the word of God in your laps this morning. Praise the Lord. We know through the study of both the Old and the New Testaments that there will be a cataclysmic end to the world. And that cataclysmic end will come at the second coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, and then eventually it will be destroyed and recreated with the new heavens and a new earth. And whenever we refer to the last days, we are looking at, in particular though, this morning at the last days immediately before the coming of Christ. As a matter of fact, the text that we are looking at in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 refers to a very brief period 
just three and a half years before the second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. So whenever we look at 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, we are acknowledging and we want to acknowledge that immediately it's referring to that time. Nevertheless, the Bible is clear in that there will be birth pains prior to that from Matthew chapter 24. And Jesus spoke of those in that chapter on, and in the Olivet Discourse. As a matter of fact, one of the things that Jesus said there in Matthew 24 and verse 24, and we'll be looking at this verse later, is that for false Christs and false prophets will arise and will show great signs and wonders so as to mislead, if possible, even the elect. We're living in a day and an age now which we are seeing clearly, explicitly indications of the last days. We're not at this point in this last three and a half year period, but we are seeing the indications of it clearly. Perhaps more than ever in the history of this earth are we seeing those indications. And we're not going to go into all of them, as I mentioned this morning. Jesus there in Matthew 24 warned of wars and rumors of wars. He warned of false Christs and false prophets. We see that prolific in our world, in our country today. But we haven't seen anything yet compared to what's coming. And with that, I want to move into our text this morning. So if you haven't already, open your Bibles with me to 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. Now, the general context of 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 is dealing with the second coming of our Lord Jesus Christ in the last days. But what was happening at the church at Thessalonica in that day was, as happens today, there were those individuals that were coming and saying things like, Christ has already come. They had the, uh, twisted the Scripture, were communicating falsehood. They were saying that many of those things that uh, were to happen had already happened, and it was leading people into confusion. All kinds of things were happening within the church at Thessalonica. So, Paul is writing ultimately to set them straight and set them on the record, but he deals with some of the events of the last days. And I'm going to ask you to look with me and start with verse 8. And I'm going to ask you to take a look at your bulletin for a moment, because I've put a translation in there this morning that we do not normally cite from. but instead of me just reading and you hearing it, I wanted you to be able to follow along with me. It's from Kenneth Woost in his uh, New Testament translation. It's an expanded translation. And I've put it here because I believe it really pulls in a lot of information and helps us understand uh, uh, much of what is here. The text, as is his translation says, And then shall the lawless one be disclosed in his true identity, whom the Lord Lord Jesus shall slay with the breath of his mouth and render inoperative by the sudden appearance of his personal presence, the coming and presence of whom the man of lawlessness is according to the operation of Satan in the sphere of miracles demonstrating power and attesting miracles and miracles of a startling, imposing amazement, awakening character which deceive and whose coming and presence is in the sphere of every kind of wicked deception geared to the gullibility of those who are perishing. This gullibility being caused by the fact that they did not accept the love for the truth to the end that they might be saved. And because of this, God sends them a deluding influence, resulting in their believing the lie 
in order that they all might be judged who did not believe the truth, but took delight in wickedness. Now, obviously, if you're familiar with the text, you immediately see, boy, that was an expanded translation there. But let's go to our text now. If you have your Bibles, look there with me, 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. Then that lawless one will be revealed from whom the Lord will slay with the breath of his mouth and bring to an end by the coming of his appearance, or by the appearance of his coming. That is, the one whose coming is in accord with the activity of Satan, with all power and signs and false wonders, and with all the deception of wickedness for those who perish because they did not receive the love of the truth so as to be saved. For this reason, God will send upon them a deluding influence so that they will believe what is false, in order that they all may be judged who did not believe the truth, but took pleasure in wickedness. Now, this man of lawlessness that is referred to here is specifically the Antichrist. And whenever we go and study the book of Revelation in conjunction with the book of Daniel, we know that the, the reign of the Antichrist has two aspects to it. The first three and a half years of his reign is a reign of moderate peace. But in the, the second portion of his reign, the last three and a half years of his reign, it will be disclosed as to who this individual really is. And that's where Paul is picking up right now. Individuals that come out and they say, oh, I bet so-and-so is the Antichrist. Or the Antichrist must be so-and-so. They're all guessing. They're all guessing. He will be hidden as to who he is and his identity until in God's time it is revealed. And that's what Paul is dealing with in verse 8. That then that lawless one will be revealed. So there is a time whenever he will be made manifest. Now then. As the text goes on, the Bible tells us here that obviously our Lord Jesus Christ will slay him with the breath of his mouth and bring to an end this individual and his reign by the appearance of his coming. And that specific account is given to us in the book of Revelation chapter 19. When Christ returns, whenever he takes the Antichrist and the false prophet, who's mentioned later in the book of Revelation, not directly mentioned here, and throws them into the lake of fire and brimstone. Now, move down with me to verse 9. That is the one whose coming is in accord with the activity of Satan. So what I want us to look at right now is the deceptive conditions that will exist in the last days. I believe that we are moving into those. How far into it, I have no idea. But clearly and universally, and universally I'm talking about worldwide, we see some of those evidences today. Not that we are right there right now, but they're coming. It is an inevitability if you believe the Bible and recognize that God is absolutely sovereign. And one of the very first things that Paul indicates to us in this text is that the immediate author of the deception of the last days is Satan. Take a look back at the text. That is, the one whose coming is in accord with the activity of, and notice this, Satan. So, the Antichrist will be acting out the bidding of Satan himself. And he will be exercising demonic powers. Because Satan is going to be, as this text says, 
giving him his authority and his energy. Notice that word activity. We actually get our English word energy from this. He's coming with the energy, the authority of Satan himself. He's the human agent, if you will, of the devil. We recognize that Satan, from John 8.44, is the father of lies. And we are looking at, in this context, deception. And we know that he is behind it. Full throttle. Working on the earth during that time. Deceiving individuals who have rejected God's truth. Notice, as the text goes on, the events as they transpire in the last days, and the things in particular that are used. First of all, notice power. Verse 9. His, in, uh, his coming, that is the Antichrist's coming, is in accord with the activity, the energy of Satan, with all power and signs and false wonders. Power, signs, and false wonders. That first word, power, is conveying the source. It's a Greek word, and in this case, it is referring to supernatural power. It's supernatural power. This is not regular strength. This is power that is beyond human strength. Beyond human strength. Even though a human will be there, this human, the Antichrist, will be carrying out these things through the energy of Satan himself. All power. As a matter of fact, whenever you go back into the Old Testament, I'm going to ask you to do that with me for a moment. And this is just one place we can get a glimpse of the power that the devil has over the things of the earth. Go with me to the book of Job. You know the account of Job, where Satan went into heaven and he appeared before the judgment seat or before the throne of God, which inevitably becomes the, the, the judgment of God. But he comes before him and he is speaking to God about Job. God asked the devil, you remember the conversation in both Job 1 and Job 2? Have you considered my servant Job? God had asked Satan, where have you come from? And he said, I come from going to and fro in the earth. And the devil, then, then God said, have you considered my servant Job? And the devil said to God, does he worship you for nothing? You've put a hedge around him. You protect him. You provide him all these good and wonderful things. And it's because of that, that that Job worships you. In other words, God, you're paying Job to worship you. You're not worth worshiping for yourself, in and of yourself. You've got to pay this guy to worship you. He's worshiping you for what's in it for him. And God said, to demonstrate that was not the case, and that God in and of Himself is worthy of worship regardless, He allowed Satan to take and move in Job's life to such a way, in such a way, to demonstrate Job's pure, true worship of God for the right reason. Now in that, you know that the devil came down and whenever he did, he began to do certain things in Job's life. And take a look here in chapter 1, verse 13. Now, on the day when his sons, that is Job's sons and daughters, were eating and drinking while in their oldest brother's house, a messenger came to Job and said, The oxen were plowing and the donkeys feeding beside them. And the Sabians attacked and took them. 
They also slew the servants with the edge of the sword, and I alone have escaped to tell you. Move to verse 17. Another messenger comes. And he says, while he was speaking, another also came and said, the Chaldeans formed three bands and made a raid on the camels and took them and slew the servants with the edge of the sword. And I alone have escaped to tell you. Now, from the human perspective, what was happening here is that armies came together and attacked. But from the biblical perspective, from God's perspective, we are able to see that what was happening was that Satan was gathering those armies. Satan has the power and the ability to muster together great armies to accomplish his purpose. As a matter of fact, after his 1,000-year incarceration spoken of, in the book of Revelation chapter 20, when he is released from the pit, he will come out and he will gather together those who are unbelievers, and he will do that against Jerusalem. And even before that, he was gathering together individuals in battle in the book of Revelation. So Satan has the ability to muster armies together for his cause. Go back to the text there in Job. Look with me at verse and 2 verse 17. While he was, or excuse me, back up uh, to verse 16. While he was still speaking, another also came and said, the fire of God fell from heaven and burned up the sheep and the servants and consumed them, and I have escaped to tell you. Verse 18, when he was still speaking, another also came and said, your sons and your daughters were eating and drinking wine in their oldest brother's house. And behold, a great wind came from across the wilderness and struck the four corners of the house, and it fell on the young people, and they died, and I alone have escaped to tell you who was behind that. We know in this context, clearly, that it was Satan. He has not only the ability, the energy, the power to muster armies together in the world, but he has the ability to control and to maneuver atmospheric conditions, meteorological conditions. And we see that happening here. He brings the wind. He brings fire down from heaven. It's called here in this context, the fire of God. That's the demonstration of it. It came from the skies. And who was behind it? It was the devil. He was the immediate cause in both of these cases. And we know that whenever you move from chapter 1 to chapter 2, that the devil also has the ability to afflict our human bodies. We have the same scenario take place there in Job chapter 2 that had been mentioned in chapter 1. And Satan is back in heaven, and God says again the same, have you considered my servant Job? And Satan this time responds by saying, skin for sin, skin. If you touch a man's body, then he'll curse you. And so God says to Satan, you go and you do anything to him you wish, but you can't kill him. So what does he do? Satan leaves the throne of God and he comes to the earth and he smites Job's body with great boils. Now listen, don't draw the conclusion that every time someone is sick, it's the devil. There are multiple things that we have to consider. That's not what the text is telling us. What it is communicating to us is the devil does have that ability. He certainly has that ability. And in this case, Job's sores were were directly related to Satan's work against him and ultimately against God. So all of that to say Satan is a powerful, powerful Powerful entity. 
again. He will come, this Antichrist, with all power. With all power. Look with me to the book of Revelation for a moment, chapter 13. Whenever you turn to Revelation 13, you're actually turning to the very event that Paul is talking about in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. I'm going to ask you to look in this text with me. Let's um, start in verse, let's go to verse 4. Actually, let's back up to verse 3. I saw one of the heads as if it had been slain, and his fatal wound was healed. And the whole earth was amazed and followed after the beast. The beast here in this particular case is the Antichrist. The dragon in this case that is mentioned in verse 1 where John says, And the dragon stood on the sand of the seashore. That dragon, according to Revelation chapter 20, is Satan. The majority of the manuscripts that we have in translations put this as the dragon. There are a few in John, or Revelation 13.1 that translate the I saw um, or I stood, but the majority refer to the dragon. And we understand from the context and from what Paul cited in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 that the Antichrist receives his authority from the beast, his energy, his strength, his power from the beast. The beast again here is the Antichrist. Look to verse 4. And they worshipped the dragon because he gave his authority to the beast. And they worshipped the beast, saying, Who is like the beast and who is able to wage war against him? This context is the world worshiping the devil. The world worshiping the Antichrist. The world concluding that this individual, the Antichrist, is so magnificently powerful that no one is capable, in the light of what they have seen and in the light of what they have experienced, no one is capable of waging war against him. You began to see the magnitude here of the power, but go on with me. And by the way, 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 9, as we read earlier, Paul specifically says that the devil will give his energy, his activity to the devil or to the Antichrist. Verse 5. There was given to him a mouth speaking arrogant words and blasphemies, and authority to act for 42 months was given to him. And he opened his mouth in blasphemies against God to blaspheme his name and his tabernacle, that is, those who dwell in heaven. It was also given to him to make war with the saints and to overcome them, and authority over every tribe and people and tongue and nation was given to him. All who dwell on the earth will worship him. Did you hear that? All who dwell on the earth will worship him. Everyone whose name has not been written from the foundation of the world in the book of life of the Lamb who has been slain. If anyone has an ear, let him hear. We'll come back to verse 10 later this morning. Then I saw another beast coming up out of the earth. So this is a second beast. This second beast is referred to in chapter 16 as the false prophet. Revelation 16, 13. Also Revelation 19, verse 20. And again in Revelation chapter 20, verse 10. So we had the Antichrist, then we have the false prophet. And we have Satan in the background energizing them all. Some have referred to this as the unholy trinity. 
and rightly so. It is a false representation of God. The false prophet being the Holy Spirit, or mimicking the Holy Spirit. But look closely at verse 11. Then I saw another beast coming up out of the earth, and he had two horns like a lamb, and he spoke as a dragon. Notice he speaks as a dragon. Who's the dragon? Satan is the dragon. It is the devil again that is energizing him. The text confirms that in verse 12. He exercises all the authority of the first beast in his presence, and he makes the earth and those who dwell in it to worship the first beast whose fatal wound was healed. He performs, and notice this closely, great signs so that he even makes fire come out of heaven to the earth in the presence of men. And he deceives those who dwell on the earth because of the signs which was given to him to perform in the presence of the beast, telling those who dwell on the earth to make an image to the beast who had the wound of the sword and has come to life. So clearly this individual, the false prophet, whoever he ultimately is, is able to perform incredible miracles designed to deceive. Whenever you begin to look at those passages, one of the things that you should and should become evident there is, as Paul is describing in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, that the characteristic of the last days will be that of incredible, incomprehensible, on the part of those who are deceived, deception. They will not be able to resist it. And as we'll see later on, if not today, next week, they will not want to resist it. Incredible. Again, powerful deception. Powerful deception. Go back to 2 Thessalonians with me. Chapter 2. Again in verse 9, the next word that's used to describe the events of deception is now following power, Signs. Signs. It's translated miracles at other places. For instance, the same word is used in John chapter 3, verse 2. And there Nicodemus says to Jesus, No man can perform the, the miracles that you are performing except God be with him. The signs or the miracles. The word has the sense of appealing to understanding, as if to say the mind is led to believe that what has taken place is of supernatural origin. That's what Nicodemus recognized. Whenever you go back and you look at that case in Nicodemus' life, in his encounter with Christ in John 3, he made the statement as I referred to a while ago, no man can do the things that you are doing, that is the miracles, except God be with him. He saw the things that Christ was doing, and he recognizes this must be something supernatural. And Nicodemus, being a religious man, equated it to God. He was thinking through that. The signs appealed to a level of understanding. Then you go to the next word. Verse 9 of 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. False wonders. False wonders. Go back with me to that text. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. As we look at these words. in accord with the activity of Satan, with all power and signs and false wonders. False wonders. This is an appeal to one's imagination. It has the idea here, the word wonders, of being in awe of something. Being in awe of it. To be taken back by it. For instance, to see fire falling from heaven. To be in awe of it. 
As a matter of fact, we know, for instance, in the Old Testament, in God's destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah, he called fire down from heaven on the place. And even to this day, in the sea around Sodom and Gomorrah, they have actually gone there and excavated out from under where the water once was sulfur balls in the area of Sodom and Gomorrah that whenever you light them, they immediately began to burn. And the area is covered with that and those kinds of things. Fire from heaven. According to Revelation 13, something that the Antichrist, the false prophet, is capable of doing. We know from Job 1 that the devil can do that. The people, whenever they see it, are in awe over it. Their imaginations are captivated. Now come to the next. Deception of wickedness. Look back in our text with me to verse 10. And with all the deception of wickedness for those who perish. Here in verse 10 is the design of the former signs and wonders. They are designed in this case to deceive and they do so by appealing to the lusts of the flesh. That is, the power, the signs, and the false wonders. There is a great appeal to the flesh in these, to those who are witnessing them. They see the events. They are captivated by them. They are inevitably, because of their own lusts and own desires, led astray. As a matter of fact, move down in the text just a moment to verse 12. In order that they all may be judged who did not believe the truth, but took pleasure in wickedness. These individuals were believing these signs because they were individuals who were taking pleasure in their own wickedness. They were deceived because they rejected the truth, as this text communicates, and took pleasure in their wickedness. So the design of these things is to captivate the minds of the fallen people in the last days. To appeal to their lusts for whatever reason and however in the immediate sense and to lead them astray. Powerful deception. As a matter of fact, we could even ask this question, how powerful was the deception and will the deception be in the last days? Well, Jesus answered that for us. He said there in Matthew 24, 24 and 25, that the deception in the last days will be so strong, so strong, that the elect could be deceived, if that were possible. It's not. It's impossible. It's impossible. And that's why Jesus used it. He was saying, basically, the deception will be so strong, so powerful, that no one is going to be able to resist it. No one, whenever you bring in this lust aspect of it, will even want to resist it. Now we may think, oh boy, that's... Way out there. Yeah, you know, you've off your rocker. Conspiracy theorist and all of that. Bible maniac or whatever you want to call him. Listen, two years ago, two years ago approximately, the entire world, not just the U.S., not just a state or a city, not even just a couple of countries, but the entire world 
was led to start wearing masks, to close down schools, to stop production, to stop work. Not just a small place, not a backwoods kind of place, not a third world country, but the entire world. And there were individuals that were proclaiming, hey, this is not right. Don't do this. There were medical professionals indicating that, yes, this is a true disease, but it is like other viruses that have come out. It will affect a lot of people and there will be few deaths. And they were immediately taken offline because they didn't meet the agenda. And whenever the agenda was brought out full force and we were all staying home and wearing masks and the children weren't going to school and that control over the world was implemented, everybody thought, well, well, I shouldn't say everybody. There were still those who were resisting, still those who were acknowledging that there's a problem here. Things are not adding up. Their story's inconsistent. Two points with that. Universal control was definitely implemented, and it was effectual to the point they needed it to be at the time. Not everyone believed that. Not everyone did. As a matter of fact, and sadly so, there are still people today that are believing it, and they're still masked. And I know all of that's controversial, but be that as it may, it is a truth. But in this day, no one, no one will put forth an argument. They will all receive the mark. They will all walk in obedience, obviously with the exception of believers, and we'll eventually come to that. But that's the power with which this Antichrist will come. That's the power of the level of deception that will be in place. It will be so powerful as it appeals to the fallen nature that no one will resist it. No one will resist it who's not informed by the truth of the Word of God. No one will. They will willingly follow the beast, willingly worship him, willingly serve him, because they are deceived. And they were deceived because they did not receive the love of the truth. And the deception appealed to their carnality, to their false or their fallen nature. We saw that in Jude chapter or verse 16. We saw it again in verse 18, where these false teachers, even today, that have impacted and infiltrated the church, appeal to the lusts of the individual. We see it again in 2 Peter chapter 2 and verse 18 and verse 2, where they appeal to the lusts of individuals. In chapter 3 of 2 Peter, verse 3, Mockers will come following after their own lusts. They are following the deception because it appeals to their fallen nature. That's powerful. That's powerful. Incredibly powerful. So powerful it can't be resisted. It can't be, unless, of course, you're informed by the truth. It will come in the form, as we said, signs and wonders, signs and wonders. Now, this is very interesting, and perhaps already the questions begin to rise in your mind. Well, wait a second. Whenever you speak of all of that, don't all of those words, the signs and the wonders, also apply to... Jesus himself, didn't he perform signs and wonders? And to the apostles, did they not perform signs and wonders? And they did. As a matter of fact, many in evangelicalism today will make that argument to support their idea of looking for signs and wonders today. 
The apostles did it. Jesus did it. And that is true. These exact same words, signs and wonders and power, are all applied in the New Testament to both Christ and the apostles. Notice, though, what's happening. Satan is the father of lies. So what he does is he will mimic those signs and wonders which God employed, and he will, that is, Satan will employ them in the last days. God also employed them in the last days, at the first coming of Christ, as I mentioned. From Hebrews chapter 1, these are the last days when Christ first came, and he began to speak to us. The Bible is clear that the, that the Lord performed those signs and that God spoke through him. Nicodemus, as I mentioned, recognized that. God must be with you because no one can do these miracles that you are doing. Otherwise, in Acts chapter 2, verse 43, the Bible clearly says, as Peter preached there, that Jesus was attested to the Jews because of and by his performance of signs and wonders. Signs and wonders. And then they were practiced by the apostles and others who delivered his word to show their validity. Clearly, that is correct. And what Satan will do as the last days, and we could say the last of the last days, gets closer, he will employ those same methods, signs and wonders. Now, you have to understand the context in Scripture of the usage of those signs and wonders. As I mentioned, Jesus performed them, and Peter said there in Acts 2.43 that God was attesting to him through those things. And the same is true for the apostles. Look with me to Acts chapter 14. Acts 14. Move down in the text with me to verse 3. This is in reference to Paul and Barnabas. Therefore they spent a long time there speaking boldly with reliance upon the Lord who was testifying to the word of His grace granting that signs and wonders be done by their hands. Same exact Greek word, signs and wonders. But what was God doing? He was attesting here to the fact that these men were of Him and were speaking God's Word. Stephen also, in the book of Acts, chapter 6, verse 8, performed signs and wonders, and he preached the Word of God. 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 12, Paul said that the signs of an apostle were worked among you, were performed among you. In Hebrews chapter 2, verse 4, again the apostles were said to have performed these signs and wonders. So what does Satan do? What better way to deceive than to look like God. And isn't that characteristic of his practice? That he is able to transform himself into a messenger of light. And that's how the coming of the Antichrist will put him in position, especially to begin with, in that beginning period of his three and a half year reign, of his seven year reign, the first three and a half years of it. One of a false peace. Incredible. As a matter of fact, here's something very important for you, and look again with me to Matthew 24. Verse 24 and 25. This is the Olivet Discourse. Christ's warning of events to come, especially in those very last days. And he says to the people, to the apostles, For false Christs and false prophets will arise and will show great signs and wonders. Same words 
so as to mislead, if possible, even the elect. Now I want you to look closely at the next verse. And this is a key one here. Behold, I have told you in advance. I've told you in advance. I love that phrase. Whenever we use that phrase ourselves, we're using it in the sense of oftentimes warning, as Christ is here. Get ready. This is going to happen. I'm telling you this is going to happen. And I'm telling you before it happens. I'm telling you in advance so that whenever it occurs, you will be mindful of it and be prepared. Right? As a matter of fact, similarly in John chapter 13, 14, and 16, as Jesus spoke about His departure, His crucifixion, and then His ascension into heaven, those different times, three different times, he used very similar words. Look at them briefly with me. John 13, move down to verse 19. John 13, 19. From now on, I am telling you before it comes to pass, so that when it occurs, when it does occur, you may believe that I am He. In the Greek, it's you may believe that I am. Jesus, in this conversation between John 13 and John 16, is conversing with His apostles before His death and His resurrection and ascension into heaven. And notice what He did. I'm telling you these things before it comes to pass, so that whenever it does come to pass, you will believe that I am He. Move from here to chapter 14, verse 29. John chapter 14, 29. Now I have told you before it happens, so that when it happens, you may believe. Look at chapter 16, in chapter 16, verse 1. These things I have spoken to you, so that you may be kept from stumbling. Move down to verse 4. But these things I have spoken to you, so that when their hour comes, you may remember that I told you of them. These things I did not say to you at the beginning, because I was with you. And whenever you go back over there to Matthew 24, 25, Behold, I have told you in advance. The idea of telling in advance is so that you can be ready, that you can be prepared. What does this mean to us? Listen to the sequence. The Lord Jesus Christ and the apostles come. Christ comes, He gives His message to the apostles to pen to the world. To the, he gives them the words of the New Testament. He promises the Holy Spirit to come to them, and He does. And the apostles and those closely associated with them are demonstrated to be of God by the miracles that they perform, the signs and the wonders. The people in seeing it were in awe. They saw the signs. They saw the power, the raising of the dead, the healing of the sick. And in those things, it was made known that these individuals were indeed doing the work of God. And God there in Matt, or Acts 14 very specifically said that He was giving attestation to His Word. To His written Word. Then notice the next thing that, is to, that occurs. What is it? Satan comes along and he begins to mimic those things. The next Scripturally speaking, conveyance of signs and wonders is not from God. It's from Satan. It's from Satan. Listen, we have a boatload of professing Christians in evangelicalism today that are caught up because of the influence of the charismatic movement in particular and other things caught up in looking for signs and wonders. 
These people are prime bait for the devil. They are rejecting the clear revelation of Scripture and looking for signs and wonders to substantiate their faith. They have rejected the love of the truth. They rejected it. They're looking for something that next on the scene will be performed by the devil. They're craving for experience is leading them astray. Some of those individuals in this recent Ashbury revival, and I listened to multiple ones that were giving their testimony. And one of the consistent things they all said is how well they felt. As a matter of fact, one individual actually said, and I was surprised, but he made this statement, I was baptized with the Holy Spirit, and he was referring to some time back, but now I want something more. There is nothing more than the Holy Spirit leading you in the written Word of God, the truth. Go back to our text for a moment. Second Thessalonians 2. Second Thessalonians 2. And move down to verse 11. For this reason God will send upon them a deluding influence so that they will believe what is false. God will send the deluding influence because they will not in and of themselves receive the love of the truth. Now, we're going to have to close this morning now. And I was hoping to cover this fifth point here before we did, but there is so much in this fifth point that we'll have to put it until next week. But let me give it to you in summary. While this tenth verse has caused much consternation among those who reject the absolute sovereignty of God, this verse should come as both a reminder and comfort to those who love the truth. For this verse demonstrates that even in the midst of such horrific deception and perilous times that God is still in sovereign control of all events. Here is represented in this verse the supernatural work of God as the Greek word translated influence here is the same word that was translated activity in verse 9, where there it was used to speak of satanic influence. Now we see that God's sovereign will is being accomplished. That should bring God's people comfort. And we'll pick that up next week. And we'll look at other places where God does this same or similar thing for us. Even our Lord said of those things in Matthew chapter 24, verse 6, that these things must take place. They must. What did he mean whenever he said they must take place? Well, first, he meant that they must because it is in accord with God's sovereign decree. It must happen because God has decreed it's going to happen. So all of the things that follow, bad though they may appear, as strong as they may appear, are still indication that God is in sovereign control. And as we pointed out a week ago or so from the book of Jude, it's not all about us at the end, is it? It's not all about humanity. It's all about God. It's all about Him. All things are from Him, through Him, and to Him. From Him, through Him, and to Him. 
God is still sovereign. And people are still responsible. Stand with me this morning. We will pick up here, Lord willing, next week. Dear God in heaven, thank you for your word that you have spoken these things to us before they transpire, that we may be prepared, that we may have light in the midst of darkness, and we do your word. Bless us with wisdom and insight and strength to stand fast in your word, to the praise of your goodness and glory. In Jesus' name, amen.